please open to James chapter 1. We'll finish the first chapter of James today. We'll back uh, up to verse 16 and go all the way to verse 27. Let me read to you. James 1, 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror, For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Each time I preach from James, I want to remind you of the theme. If you don't have the theme in mind, then James ends up becoming a book of little chunks of unrelated wisdom. And it is not intended to be like the book of Proverbs. There is a theme here. In fact, actually, the book of Proverbs has a theme too, which is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, setting the the scene for you that the rest of the book of Proverbs won't matter to you if there's no fear of the Lord. If there's no fear of the Lord, you're not going to listen to any of the wisdom you're about to read. Same with James. Same with James. He is going to lay out for us godly wisdom, wisdom that's from above versus earthly, carnal, worldly wisdom. And he's going to talk about this double-minded man, this double-minded man who says he wants godly wisdom and yet is still trying to live life according to his own wisdom. And as Jesus said, a servant cannot have two masters. You can't follow your own wisdom and God's wisdom simultaneously. It it doesn't work. And so, James is written to believers, but it seems that James has two different kinds of believers in mind. There's certainly unbelievers. If we wanted to categorize the world, we could say there's unbelievers and believers. James is addressing believers. But within that category, he's talking about two kinds of believers. One who professes faith, and yet their actions betray their profession of faith. Their actions betray their profession of faith. They don't seem to be living consistent with the Word of God. And so perhaps they may not be true believers at all. Then there are believers who are earnestly trying to apply the Word of God to their lives and grow in faith. And even to those, he would say, if your faith has stalled, if your sanctification has stalled, it is due to the fact that you are still um, listening to the flesh. You're listening to worldly wisdom. You're listening to carnal, earthly, fleshly wisdom. 
So we, as individuals, as believers, need to test ourselves. This isn't for me to test you. I'm not giving you a grade. If you come to me and ask what I see, I will tell you what I see. We will talk together. But I am not your judge. God is your judge. He's given us this book in order for us to test our faith. It's a, uh, a self-evaluation tool. And the first two tests that he has covered in the first chapter is the test of trials and the test of temptations. And we saw they're similar but vastly different. The godly man, the blessed man, is learning to rejoice in trials. Not rejoice about the trial, but rejoice in the trial. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why would we rejoice in the midst of suffering and pain? Because God has told us that it is exactly that which will bring us closer to Him and strengthen our faith. How do you have a relationship with the invisible, immortal, God-only-wise? Through faith. Until that day when we stand before Him in glory in heaven, and we will then have sight. Until that day, faith is the basis for our relationship with God. And we need our faith strengthened, and trials strengthen faith. And we're trusting God for that. God, if you say the most important thing to me should be my relationship with you and my faith in you, and you created me, and you know best what will bring me into a closer relationship with you and will strengthen my faith, then I trust in that. I will lean into it. In fact, I will learn to rejoice in my trials. Is your heart headed in that direction? It should be as a true believer growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Secondly, do you reject temptation or are you apt to blame others and blame God ultimately for your sin? A true believer grieves over his sin and doesn't blame others for his sin. It is natural human conventional wisdom to say, somebody else made me do it. Yes, I struggle with anger, but that's because of so-and-so. Put the sin in the blank and then find somebody or circumstances to blame. The true believer doesn't do that. He's learning to take responsibility for his sin, as the Bible taught us last week. It's your sinful desires, my sinful desires, mixed with deception, untruth, giving birth to sinful actions. And then sin eventually gives birth to death. It brings separation from God, separation from others. It breaks down our relationships. Yet, we also saw that God's perfect will plus His truth, His word of truth, gives birth to what he calls the first fruits of his creation. Believers were the first fruits of the new creation. He's going to redeem his creation. And we're the first fruits. Believers are the first fruits. How did we come into being as the first fruits? God's perfect will plus the word of his truth. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So, are you learning to rejoice in trials and are you learning to reject temptation and not blame others for your sin? Along with rejecting temptation, we could add a couple other R words remorse and repentance. Do, are you remorseful over your sin? Or again, are you seeking to blame others? And are you turning from sin? It's one thing to name your sin, and it's another thing to actually turn from it, to repent. 
The third test then today is that true believers receive the Word of God. True believers receive the Word of God, unlike the unbeliever or the double-minded man. It is possible to call yourself a professing believer, sit under wonderful, godly, biblical teaching, and not receive that teaching. It is very possible. In fact, three times James says, do not be deceived. He uses a different Greek word each time, so it doesn't always look like the word deceived in your Bible. But it is the idea that we can be deceived into thinking that we are true believers and that we love God and that we obey His Word. So he's saying, test yourself. Do not be deceived. What do you really see? What evidence do you see? What is going on in your heart? Do you receive God's Word? Do you respond to it with gladness? Do you let it have its way with you? Or do you put up a fight? Do you rationalize and justify your own ideas, your own wisdom, and your own behavior? In um, verse 16, he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Don't be deceived. Don't blame God. He doesn't tempt to sin. Yes, He allows us to be put into difficult circumstances for our own good, but never to tempt us to sin. Verse 22 do not be nearly uh, hearers, merely hearers of, uh, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves or deceive themselves. And then in verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart. So we have three deceives in a very short period of time. That ought to tell you something. What's it telling us? We're easily deceived. Be on guard for it. Who do we know in the Bible who was deceived? (laughs) Right? Our original parents, Adam and Eve. That led to the fall. We still have that sin nature that is prone to being deceived. We can be deceived by... Satan, by the world, and by our own flesh, he says the second time. People who delude themselves. We'll talk more about that when we get to that verse. I quote verse 19 all the time, and I have to confess that I've been misquoting it and using it out of context. Although, in the way I use it, it's not wrong, because in general, it is general biblical wisdom that we should all be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That's just just good teaching right there. But that isn't specifically what James is telling us here. Yes, you ought to shut up and listen more. But the immediate context is, verse 19 is wedged between two references to God's Word saving our souls. It is God's Word that justified us, brought us into the kingdom of light, saved us, justified us. And it is God's Word that sanctifies us, that helps us to put off the old man and put on the new man in Christ and grow us in spiritual maturity. First Peter one twenty three echoes the sentiment for you have been born again not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. What is that seed, Peter? Through the living and enduring word of God. We've got this seed imagery, this agricultural metaphor, same as James, we're the first fruits. What was the seed? The word of truth. So then he says, this you know, my brethren. He's saying, 
I'm preaching to the choir. You know that's how you got saved. You heard the Word of God. You heard the Gospel. You believed in it. And you were saved. It transformed you. Since you know this, since you know the Word of God has that kind of power, shut up and listen to it. That's what he's saying. Be quick to hear. Slow to speak. Don't be that guy or that gal who, while someone else is talking, they're just waiting for them to stop so they can tell you the idea they had five minutes ago. They're not listening to anything you're saying. Don't be that person. Listen to God's Word. Take it in. Receive it. Meditate on it. Ruminate on it. Ask questions of it. Let it examine you. Let it shine light on your heart and on your thoughts. Actively participate in the learning process. Be active hearers. I bet you've had teachers in school tell you this. Take your Cornell notes or whatever they're teaching. Now, you can't just sit there and drool. You get that student, they raise their hand and they ask a question and you're like, you have not heard a word I've said for the last... There's no way you're asking that question if you were listening. That is the picture here. This you know, my beloved brethren, but... Why, why the word but? Because we're dull-hearted and we're slow to change. And we trust in our own wisdom. And we are slow to hear and quick to speak. Aren't we? If you're saying you're not, you're not listening to the Word of God. You're proving the point. Everybody struggles with this. But everyone, everyone, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. This righteousness of God's not talking about our justification. Here it's now talking about our sanctification. It doesn't produce the righteous behavior God desires. I've always took this verse to mean, you know, don't yell at my kids and just yell them into good behavior. Although... That's true. Stop yelling at your kids to try to get them to obey. They may obey on the outside, but they're not obeying on the inside. They're just tired of you yelling. And when they get older, they yell back. So don't get in the habit of yelling at your children. As long as we're using children as an illustration, let's continue. Have you ever tried to teach your kids when they're in an unteachable moment? You know what I mean? They're like, but, but you don't understand. You don't get it, Dad. It's like, no, I do get it. I'm 42. I get it. I've lived it. I was a junior high school teacher and a high school teacher for seven years. I get it. You're the one who doesn't get it. You just don't know what you don't know yet. Let me teach you. And if they're not at a teachable place, you cannot yell. You can't just say it again louder. You have to wait till they're at a place where they're ready to receive. This is the picture here. If you are slow to hear and quick to speak and quick to anger, you are not listening to the Word of God. When people come into counseling, I can tell if they're ready to receive the Word of God or not. And if they're not, lots of prayer. You've got to kind of walk a mile in their shoes, show them that you care about them, show them you're listening, you understand their problem. But if they never get to that place where they're ready to let God's Word teach them, no progress. And we've had some angry people in my office. Sometimes the secretaries, after a session, come in and say, Are you okay? It's embarrassing. But we all get that way, don't we? So have compassion on those who are 
being slow to hear and quick to speak and quick to anger. Hey, the, the walls at the church here are not soundproof. <laughs> They're soundproof enough if you keep your, your speech at a normal tone, but this is what James is telling us. The, the blessed man is one who is slow to speak. Why is he slow to speak? Because he's busy listening. And beloved, if, if this word is what we ran into, stopped us dead in our tracks when we became saved, told us we are headed the wrong way and you need to head this way, then we would expect the same word of God to do this to us all the time. The word of God will offend your Worldly wisdom. It will offend. You will find yourself at odds with it. But you have to be at a place where your, your disposition is, let God's word have its way. It's right. Be suspicious of me, not of God's word. Be suspicious of my own heart, not God's heart. God loves me. He died for me. He is truth and the source of all truth. I need to listen. I understand why we get angry when we're being counseled with the Word of God. It pulls off fig leaves. I don't like being naked and exposed. It tells me that I'm foolish. I don't like being called a fool. In all honesty, I'd rather be called a sinner than a fool. Shame on me, but that's you too. But it's that very same Word of God that is going to sanctify us. In fact, in verse 21, which is able to save your souls. When the Bible speaks of salvation, it often is talking about justification, sanctification, or glorification. Salvation is the whole package. But you have to look at the context and see if the salvation is referring to the justification or just the sanctification, or just the glorification. In verse 21, save your souls is sanctification. In verse 18, it was more talking about our justification, our being born again. So, James says, because the word of God is powerful and can do this, and that the anger of man will not achieve the righteous behavior God is looking for, he says, therefore, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, because you can't continue to live in rank, unrepentant, presumptuous sin and receive the word of God at the same time. It, it can't happen. Put off the behaviors of the old man and in its place, in humility, there's a key word there, in humility, humble yourself, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. That's the third test then. Do you receive the word of God with humility? Is your life marked, not 100%, but is it marked by an ever-increasing pattern of humbly receiving the word of God? That's been implanted. I love that word. You didn't implant it. God implanted it in you when you were saved. It's in there. But are you cultivating it? Are you watering the soil? Are you pulling the weeds? Are you making your heart a place that is a good place for God's Word to germinate and grow? Or are you bringing pride and filthiness and wickedness into your life. The Word of God will not blossom in that environment. Receiving is different than just reading your Bible for 15 minutes every morning. That's religion. And James later says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious... Don't be deceived. 
I read my Bible every morning, nothing's happening, then you're not really reading it. You're just checking off the box of, I read my Bible 15 minutes every morning. You need to study it. You need to receive it. Ask questions of the text. When I was a, a math teacher and I'd finish a lesson, I'd say, any questions? If nobody had any questions, I'd mm. Same with a, a Sunday school lesson. You ought to have questions. It tells me that you're hearing. It tells me that you're hearing. It's interesting that we have these uh, three these three part progressions. Okay, so he says earlier, this is how sin happens. You 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 think uh, you desire wrong things, then you think about it. You're deceived, and then it gives birth to sin. And but when you were saved, God, in the exercise of His perfect will with the word of truth, and then you have first fruits, a new creation. And then we have another group of threes. Be slow to speak, or quick to hear. Quick to hear, you've got to hear the word of God. Slow to speak. Why slow to speak? Because the person who speaks immediately after hearing the word of God didn't really hear it. They're already saying, well, I already knew that. Or I know what that means. But then it produces anger. Anger over what? Later in James, he's going to tell us when we get angry in James 4.1, when we desire something that we can't have. I've heard this a number of times now where somebody has said, why didn't they went to tell me? I talked to someone... I said, why don't you have them come in and talk to me? And they said, I did. I said, why don't you go and talk to Pastor Brent? And they said, I already know what he's going to tell me. So I don't want to go in. And they're angry. He's going to get out the Bible and he's going to tell me why I can't have this and that I need to repent. And, and that attitude right there betrays somebody who is not growing in faith. I put some Proverbs up here. Proverbs 17, 28, Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. And I think I had another proverb, and I cut and pasted the same proverb. If you Google Proverbs and... um, Not speaking, you'll get a whole list of things coming up. The Proverbs have much to say. Because the foolish man just opens his mouth and just lets whatever come out, come out. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. When they train us to counsel, they say, just get people talking. And eventually the, the problems will, will come out. Just let them speak, write it down, and then say, well, you said, this is what came out of your mouth, giving you all the insider tools here, because I want you to be able to minister the Word of God to others. Listen to them. Hear what their chief complaint is. Ask them questions like, what do you think the problem is, and what do you think the solution is? That'll tell you a lot. Let me just give you a little three-part outline here, and it just goes along with what James said. Wise believers, first of all, they hear the Word of God. And by the way, hearing the Word of God includes not responding in anger. Another proverb for you. A fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. But I love what the King James says. A fool uttereth all his mind. Isn't that interesting that that's synonymous with a fool always loses his temper? 
A fool uttereth all his mind. Have you ever had anyone just vomit up all of their thoughts in all of its ugliness and incoherence? Blah. Have you done that to anyone? Yeah. But a wise man keepeth it in till afterwards. After what? After hearing and thinking and praying and you may come to the same conclusion, but it's surely going to come out a lot differently. Secondly, wise believers receive the Word of God with purity and humility. Again, you can't receive the Word with humility if you're busy living in gross, presumptuous sin. Listen to James's language, and then, and then let's hear some other apostles use the exact same language. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. 1 Peter 2, 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So a different list of bad stuff. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Instead of the agrarian metaphor, he uses this newborn babies in the, in the milk. But you see the connection here. You've got to put these things off in order to grow in the Word. Don't come to church Sunday morning and hear the Word and then leave and go watch filthiness on the TV or practice malice and slander and deceit and envy. These things inhibit the growth of the Word. Listen to the way Paul says it, and it's a much longer passage because Paul never says anything with few words. Ephesians 4.17 So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. So he's saying, stop living like an unbeliever. Well, what do unbelievers look like? In the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. He's saying all the darkening of their heart and not listening to the Word of God produces produces the sensuality and the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him. What's he saying there? There's a test. If indeed you say you've learned Christ, but if indeed you have, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which and the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and of the truth. Are you getting these connections here? Deception and worldly wisdom leads to filthiness, sin, separation, death. The truth of God's Word regenerates and leads to putting on the new man in Christ. So at the very least today, as you test yourselves, you go home and test yourself and see how you're doing, is there a pattern of putting off the old man and putting on the new? Are you losing your taste for old things and gaining an appetite for new things? New forms of entertainment, new forms of the way you communicate with others.
Thirdly, wise believers, or what James calls the blessed man, receive the word of uh, receive the word by doing the word. Receive the word by doing the word. Right belief ought to lead to right behavior. Or as theologians say, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Or are you one of those people who says, I know the truth, I just can't do the truth until God changes my desires. That is a lie straight from the pit. You can respond in obedience. What are you saying when you say, God hasn't changed my desires? Whose fault's your sin? God's fault. That was test number two. When Peter said, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother? How about seven times? Is that enough? And God said, Jesus said, seven times seventy. And Peter said, oh, Lord, increase my faith. And Jesus didn't say, you're right. You're going to need more faith. No, he told a parable about a slave who worked all day in the fields and then came in and his master said, serve me dinner. And he says, the slave doesn't say, wait a minute, I've been working all day. I can't do that. No, the slave does what the master has commanded. You receive the word by doing the word. If you, re- if you think you've received the word, but you're not doing the word, you haven't received the word. You may have heard a word, but it didn't seep down into the deep soil of your heart, because it should produce fruit. This is the mystery of the faith. How much of our sanctification is God and how much is us? It's all God and all us working together. And the right attitude you should have is when things go well, you should say glory to God, and when things aren't going well in your sanctification, say, my fault. Don't blame God when your sanctification stalls, but give Him all the glory when your sanctification is flourishing. We get it backwards. We take all the credit when we're living righteously and when we're stuck in a sin, we blame God for not giving us enough faith or not changing our heart or whatever euphemism we like to to throw out. James gives us this metaphor, this helpful metaphor. He said, anyone who hears the word and doesn't do it is like this man who looks in the mirror in the morning, or woman. And back then, mirrors weren't like they are today. They are highly polished pieces of, of metal. So it was a bit of an obscure view, but enough to be able to see yourself and you see your hair's out of place and you haven't shaved and you've got a couple pimples and um, you haven't brushed your teeth and there's breakfast still in there. And, and perhaps you get distracted, the phone rings or whatever, you walk away from the mirror and you put on your coat and tie and you head off to work and you say, man, am I handsome. It's a funny metaphor, but it's very powerful. That is the person who peers into the Word of God, hears the Word of God, and then walks away and doesn't change anything about their life. Bible study after Bible study after Bible study after Bible study, sermon after sermon after sermon. I have a Bible reading plan. I read through the Bible in a year. And no change. Because somehow we were taught that mystically and magically, God's Word just changes you. You could just put it under your pillow as you sleep and by osmosis will change. No, what brings the change is when your will and your version of the truth collides with God's will and His version of the truth and God wins and you submit to it. That's what brings the change. That is the power. It saddens me to no end. And I have this testimony, and so many other people have this testimony. I hear it again and again. We'll get into the counseling room. I'll ask their testimony, and they'll say, well, I grew up in a church. 
And eventually it's, well, tell me what you know about the Bible. I know absolutely nothing about the Bible. How did this happen? Because we thought that if we just stand up and read it out loud and then sit down, that somehow that was going to transform us. You have to hear it and receive it and do it. Hear, receive, do. By the way, a warning here. If you do without hearing and receive, you will cultivate self-righteousness and pride. That is the religion he's going to talk about, the worthless religion, the going through the motions, my checklist of things that I do that prove that I'm a holy person. You have to hear, receive, and then do. Look at this word delude. It's a wonderful word in the Greek. We don't really have anything quite like it in the English, which I guess why we have pastors who study Greek. The word is para logizomai in the Greek. Para, to come alongside. Logizomai, to reason, to think, to rationalize. How do we delude ourselves? We take God's truth and we throw our wisdom alongside it and convince ourselves and rationalize that God's word doesn't mean what it really means. A deluded person would hear God's word, know what it means, and then go out and do the opposite and say, I'm a good godly person. That should not be, brothers and sisters. You should be living a life that the world finds compelling and odd and maybe even offensive on some level. So good all the time. Always doing the right thing. Always loving people. What's the old saying? If Christianity became illegal tomorrow, which it seems like we're on that path, would they have enough evidence to convict you? Or would they say, yeah, I know they call themselves a Christian, but we all know he's not. We all know. We know the way he lives. We know the way she lives. This man will be blessed in what he does. Not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Here comes that word blessed again. Here's the blessed man. Remember, James pulls a lot of his material from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This is exactly how the Sermon on the Mount ends. Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with that parable about the wise man and the foolish man who build their homes. We sing it in Sunday school. The wise man built his house upon the rock. And we say, okay, kids, then what's the rock? Jesus! And you're... Yes, because Jesus is always the right answer in Sunday school. But what does that mean? You go home and metaphysically and existentially, what does that mean to build your house on top of Jesus? Are we talking slab or piers? What, what, how do you do that? It's not like Jesus used some obscure metaphor here. He explains it. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, in other words, being hearers and doers, he may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. So the rock is hearing Jesus' words and doing them. That's the blessed man. You can't just come and hear all the time and not do in fact, you will heap condemnation on yourself because you will be held responsible for all that knowledge, all that biblical truth that you've heard. The double-minded man deceives himself, deludes himself into worthless religion. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Right? So think deluded, bringing your own truth alongside God's truth and justifying your behavior and your sins. So what's he saying here? Your tongue comes alongside and speaks untruth 
alongside God's truth and deceives your own heart. You can put the bridle on your tongue. This works for us. We live in a horse community here. Beautiful imagery. Bridle your tongue. Put put the bit in there. Put the bridle on. Steer your tongue. Speak truth into your own heart. The truth you've received by hearing the Word of God. So hearing... Receiving and doing the Word of God leads to pure and undefiled religion. Religion being religious activity. See, it would be a mistake to say, well, I don't want to be like those hypocrites, so I'm not going to do religious activity. No, religious activity can be very good when done with the proper motive. James is... When James calls the Word of God the perfect law of liberty, he's not saying it's the law that lets you do whatever you want. It's a beautiful term, law of liberty, because they're paradoxical. Do you ever think of the law and liberty at the same time? No, laws tell you what you can't do. James uses this beautiful language, this law of liberty, the law that brings liberty. The law that tells you what not to do so you can be free to do the things that bring blessing. The widows and orphans and keeping yourself unstained from the world is not the definition of pure and undefiled religion. It's an example of it. Let's get that straight. We ought to take care of widows and orphans, but our faith better lead to much more than even that. But it is something that was not happening in the community of Jesus' time. Remember, the, the religious people, the Pharisees, were good at keeping the law and tithing on their mint and their dill, but they couldn't give a hoot about widows and orphans. In fact, when that widow gave her last two coins at the temple, Jesus wasn't pointing that out as an example of what his church ought to look like. That was an example of, this is so sad. What kind of religious system would require a destitute widow to give her last two coins? Now, she gave out of her poverty instead of her abundance, there's a lesson there. But the point there was, oh, what have the religious people done to God's word? They've corrupted it. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Why is this a good example of pure and undefiled religion? Because it's a heart of compassion like God's heart. The widow and the orphan cannot do anything for you. They can't pay you back. In that society, they're, they're at the bottom of the food chain. And he says to visit them, which goes beyond cutting a check, although money would be a good start. But think about how lonely the widow and the orphan are. So it's okay to give to these causes, but even better to visit the widow, spend time with her, to visit the orphan, to adopt, to take in a foster child. And then what about keeping yourself unstained by the world? Well, again, remember, in that context, here were people calling themselves religious calling themselves a religious and keeping the law fastidiously. But when they wanted to commit adultery, instead of committing adultery, they would just write a certificate of divorce and get rid of their wife. That's, that's not pure and undefiled religion. Yeah, but I didn't commit adultery. So Jesus said anyone who even looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed 
adultery. First John 2.15, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So, beloved, go home this afternoon and examine yourself. Let God's Word examine you. Let it lay bare your heart. I will do the same. How are we doing in these areas? How do we respond to trials? With rejoicing, knowing that it's going to draw us closer to God? How do we resist temptation? Do we blame God for the temptation? Or do we blame ourselves? And how do we receive God's Word? Is it producing the righteous fruit that God is looking for? Or is it just making us callous and making our hearing dull? I'll pray for you. You pray for me. Amen? And let me pray and dismiss us. Father, God, we don't want to be the double-minded man. Your word brought us into the kingdom of light. May we receive it and hear it and do it. Lord, we know the power that raised Christ from the dead is working in us, giving us the ability to say yes to your word and no to our own word, yes to your righteousness and no to our unrighteousness. Yes to our new nature and no to our old nature. Show each of us this week, Lord. Encourage us where we see positive results and convict us where we need to grow and mature more. And if anyone here, after examining themselves, is doubtful because of the fruit he sees. May he get on his knees. May she get on her knees and truly receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Stop the hypocrisy and accept a relationship with God Most High. And go back to God's Word with a heart ready to receive and obey. And you will get all the glory, and we will get all the benefit. In Jesus' name, amen.